We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply Hey everyone, before we get to today's episode of Perpetual Chess, I just wanted to say thanks to everyone who has supported the show. Ways to support Perpetual Chess include telling a friend about the show, subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use, better yet, leaving a positive review on that platform. But most of all, I want to thank the people who've supported me with the new Patreon page. If you haven't heard, it's patreon.com slash perpetual chess, and the suggested donation there is $2 a month. So I tried to keep it as affordable as possible for as many people as possible. The donations go to cover things like the production, the audio equipment, and the hosting for the show. So if you can't afford it, you definitely shouldn't donate. But if you can, it's really appreciated and it helps out a lot. And guess what? I think it's also going to make the show better. What we're going to do is people who donate to the show will get advance notice of the guests and they will have the chance to send in questions to the guests. So if you feel like there's some topic I don't cover enough, or if you have some favorite player that you're waiting for them to come on, well, there's a good chance we're going to get them at some point. So now you can sit back and wait. And then when someone's coming on who interests you, you can pounce like a cheetah and get your questions in. I think this is going to make it a better show overall, more community driven. I've always said I want this show to be by the people and for the people. Well, I think that this will help make that happen. So thanks again for all the support and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. 
On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Perpetual Chess Podcast. I am here with USCF National Master, best-selling author, big shot podcaster, entrepreneur, and inspiration for the Perpetual Chess Podcast, James Altucher. Hey, Ben, thanks so much. Uh, thanks for inviting me on the show. I, I like the uh, title, Big Shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've earned it. I mean, you. Uh, I'm a big fan of yours. You first came on my radar, believe it or not, James, in 2008. I mean, I know you've sort of been in the public eye even before then, but... I was just busy with poker back then, and our mutual friend, Elon Schwartz, that was when the markets were going crazy. So uh, I was losing money and suddenly getting interested in the markets, and I I was talking to him. I remember where it was. It was in the Beer Garden at 4th Avenue Pub in Brooklyn, and I said, you know, I'm getting really interested in markets, and he said, you should check out this guy, James Altucher. That's so funny, because I think I've been to the Beer Garden with Elon in... In, I think, 2008, actually. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, I think early 2008. It was right before the, his first trip to the World Series. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, gonna to mess up the timeline, but that was, I think, I can't remember if that was before or after his big score, but I think it was after. It must have been after because I was at that bar with him the day before. Yeah, and he, I know that he was on your podcast, and he had quite a story. I mean, it was kind of the all-is-lost moment right before that tournament, and then things just turned around. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I, 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 I was there. I, I talked him out of the all-is-lost. He didn't want to go to the World Series of Poker, and we went to go get a beer. And you know, without going into too many details, of course, of, of his story – I, I, I kind of cheered him up, and he, and he left the next day and, and, and came in third place at the World Series of Poker. Nice. I'm, not taking, I'm not taking any credit for it because Elon is a great poker player. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah, an amazing story. And shout to Elon for uh, helping me get you on the podcast. I know you're a popular guy, so welcome to any new listeners that Mr. Altucher here has brought in. I'm thinking there's, there's an interesting Venn diagram of listeners that we'll have for this, James, because... There's people like me who are fans of chess and fans of you, and then there's going to be the people who are just fans of chess and the podcast, and then there will be the people that are such dedicated fans of you that they're even willing to listen to a chess podcast, but you guys well, are that, all welcome here. The, th- the thing is also, I remember, in 19, you say 2008, I remember 1999 seeing in the, at, the, at the Taj in Atlantic City, um, Greg Shahade and a friend of his playing poker uh, at some of the tables and uh you must have been the friend with greg yeah that yeah that sounds very plausible i mean that was right when we first got interested in poker we're the rounders generation so rounders came out and suddenly we're like oh there's a game where you can actually make money and from then on we were hooked and i know you were already knee deep in it by then yeah yeah and um it's funny because i was i i'm very good friends with the writer of rounders because uh we all we all played at the mayfair and uh uh, you know, he, he's been on my podcast a bunch of times, Brian Koppelman. Oh yeah. I'm a big Brian Koppelman fan. I've heard, I've heard you on his podcast, him on your podcast, your daughter on his podcast. I got, I got it all covered. No, no. His daughter on mine. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Excuse me. Right. His daughter on your podcast. Yeah. 
Um, so anyway, James, I mean, this is a chess podcast, so I'm going to take advantage of your generosity and ask you some other questions too, but let's start with chess. So you're right. a U- U.S. national master. You started playing at 17, and my understanding is you, you rose pretty quickly once you, you got into chess. Well, I'm curious what you think about this because so, – so I started playing, and I think like within a year, I kind of hit – or even earlier, I kind of hit my peak performance – and then I stopped playing for a while, uh, and then I picked it up again, like a few years later. And in a few months, I kind of hit, you know, a little over twenty-two hundred. And I took lessons along the way to kind of, you know, take what I maybe naturally had and and kind of added to it. And then I just sort of, you're just sort of, I'm always sort of around the same level I was like the day I started playing. <laughs> Do yeah. you feel that's yeah. true? Why? Well, like, like have this base level what, that you're sort of born with and, and lessons. I took, I always took lessons, but, but lessons would kind of help me kind of work with what I had. And then if I stopped taking lessons, I would just be back to my baseline. Yeah. I think it's basically true. I mean, my theory sort of is you have sort of a baseline level that you can reach with the same amount of work as any reasonably hardworking chess player. And from that baseline level, if you work the rest of your life, I think you can get 200 more points. I think that's what happened to me. I think I would say my baseline is probably a, a solid 2,200, give or take. And, yeah. Then, yeah. and then with the help of, of teachers ranging from Roshevsky when he was alive to uh, John Fedorowicz was my, my last instructor back in 1997, um, maybe my... Uh, I, I, I wasn't playing as much in tournaments, but maybe my performance level was probably around twenty three fifty. Yeah, I, I, my rating. Yeah, I'm similar. My rating peaked over twenty two, like twenty two eighty or so. And I think if I had, I had never really studied seriously after I was eighteen. And I think if I had, like maybe twenty four hundred is the best I could have ever been. But I don't think I had more talent than that. Despite some guests on here have said like anyone can become a grandmaster, but I don't feel like I could have. Yeah, it feels like so hard. I mean, I was working really hard at it, but only for a short period of time when I when I felt like I was hitting my peak. I don't know if I had kept working at it. I don't I don't know what would have happened. I, I was really kind of I feel like my brain was firing on all cylinders then. But but maybe if you just keep going at it for like 10 years straight, you keep improving. But but it's probably much slower. Yeah, that's what I think happens. It's much slower. And you, yeah, just grunt work. So you you started was your first tournament when you were 17? Yeah, um, yeah, probably seventeen. My my first rating was just about was probably between eighteen hundred and nineteen hundred. Then I went straight up to um, I think around twenty one hundred. Then I I stopped because of college and, and and work and and things. And then and then I was I guess I was kind of filling in. I think chess always sort of fills the gaps in my life when I'm unhappy with either career or relationships. And so. I think at one point I was unhappy with both at the same time. So I started playing in, in tournaments and taking lessons again. And um, I quickly went to 2200 and, and just stopped playing. Okay. Yeah, okay. chess can be a good escape if, if you have the proper perspective. <laughs> which, I, which, which, I, which I never had. So uh, uh, often in the years after when I was depressed or down or whatever, I would play uh chess online constantly which was never healthy because i would just be talking on the phone and playing chess and it's it's proof to me by the way that talking on the phone 
people shouldn't do while driving. Because if I was just taking it seriously uh, and not talking on the phone, uh, my chess rating was at least two standard deviations higher than when I was talking on the phone and playing chess, which is what I was doing most of the time. Yeah, I I agree with you about the driving thing. It's and I've tried multitasking with chess because like, you know, it's like oh, focusing is hard work. So on the one hand, you want to have fun playing chess, but then you want to do something else. But then your results are terrible. So you're like, it's like a vicious cycle. You you know, garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. No. What would happen is is I, all week long I would talk on the phone, and every time I couldn't even talk on the phone unless I was playing online chess. And then I would say to myself, okay, on the weekend, I'm going to just catch up so my rating's back to normal. But then, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really do it on the weekend. And so I would just keep playing while talking on the phone. That's funny. And so, but if your first rating was 18 or 1900, James, I'm thinking you might be more talented than you've let on. That's, that's pretty rare. I don't know. I, I always, you know, I've had this discussion with, um, Anders Ericsson, who, uh, uh, you know, he wrote, the, he, he's kind of the so-called inventor of, or the, uh, of the concept of the 10,000 hour rule. And yeah. he doesn't yeah. believe in talent at all. Like he doesn't believe there's any role of talent. Meanwhile, on the opposite end of the spectrum, I've spoken with Gary Kasparov and he, he believes a hundred percent in, in talent and then hard work. Um, but of course he thought he was the most he does think he's the most talented in history, and, he, and maybe he is. And and he attributes, you know, his great success to that talent. So uh, I I don't I'm always confused. Like, what 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 do you think is the relationship between talent and skill? Like, what what percentage of any skill? Because I always like to explore anything that's difficult. So let let's say we can call something difficult if there's twenty different. This is arbitrary, but if there are twenty different levels of skill. Where if you're at level X, then two, two out of three times you'll beat or be better than the person at level X minus one. So, uh, so like tic-tac-toe has two levels of skill and tennis and chess probably have like, you know, 50 levels of skill. Um, but, but I'm interested in anything that, that's, that's difficult uh, and, and requires, you know, effort to, to get better in. And there's a definite difference between the top and the, and, and the bottom. And uh, I'm always curious, what percentage do you think is talent and what percentage do you think is, is skill? Well, what's your view on that? I'm kind of a um, nature guy, I hate to admit. You know, I have, I have liberal leanings in my politics. So I, I, like I said, it's not, like, it's not my favorite thing to, to discuss or to admit. But to me, I mean, just my own experience in life, it seems obvious to me that people are naturally – you know, more inclined towards certain things than others. And chess has definitely been a nice, um, a nice view into that world. Um, I mean, as a teacher, I teach chess. So you just teach kids the same thing and see them assimilated at a different level. Now, I'm sure as Anders Ericsson says, that doesn't mean that uh, the, the person with less talent can't achieve great things, but they're definitely going to have to put in more time, in my opinion. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Like, like, look, definitely, I wouldn't have in tournament chess. You can't, you know, you can't totally succeed above twenty two hundred unless you have some knowledge of openings and and tactics and 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 endings. But then, you know, I remember when um, I guess it was in the early nineties. I remember going to to one tournament and watching the eleven year old Jorge Zamora play. Oh, I remember and him. That yeah. guy was just. 
you know, he was already well over 2,200, maybe 2,400 in skill at, at 11 years old. So, and clearly just tactically, he was a genius and he didn't really know at that age, you don't really know openings that well or endings that well. So a lot of it is just, you know, somehow or other, he kind of knew tactics. And then you look at his family, his dad's a master and, and, uh, Elias, his, his brother was a mass, a strong master. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, clearly, clearly he was talented probably at the 2400 level as his baseline. Yeah. And, and yeah, at and, some point he, he didn't push it that hard after that, but yeah, people like that. I mean, I played Hikaru when he was a little kid. I played his brother Asuka when he was a little kid and he was a, a great talent too. Um, wait, you mean Elias? No, I'm talking about Hikaru Nakamura and Asuka Nakamura, just oh, as, as a second, a second example. Yeah, uh, after I hit 2200, I played Asaku, Asaka at um, the Marshall Chess Club, and he was around 1900, I was 2200, and I thought I was just going to steamroll him, and I did win, but it was like a really hard game. And then he was like, I don't know, he was like 11 years old or nine years old or something. And then his like six-year-old brother, Hikaru, uh, comes up to the table and is like yelling at him, no, you should play this, this, and this. And I'm like, I got I to gotta quit chess now. Yeah, the, the, losing to the little kids, it's uh, well, you either have like, to come to grips with it or, yeah, run away. And I was like 30 years old, okay, and there, and there's these little kids that clearly like – who is this little kid that's like chastising his brother? I'm over 2,200. Who's this six-year-old who's, of course, I didn't realize he was going to be one of the top three players in the world at some point. But like I figured, okay, this is this is not even really fun for me at, to play in tournaments with, with this happening because you can't compete. Yeah. Yeah. James, is it possible to turn down the sound? I think it's like a Facebook message thing or something. Yeah, let me see. Um I mean, let me just get rid of this screen. You know what? Can I just tell you this thing that happened? Sure. <laughs> and, um, so I, I do stand-up comedy. That's like the skill that I'm trying to learn now. I'm always trying to find the next skill. And, and that's an incredibly difficult skill. I would put it on the level of chess or, or more. You know, it's the same type of thing. Though. There's like 50 levels of, of skill. And there's lots of micro skills. Like just in chess, like chess, in chess, you can't just learn one skill. You've got to learn all these micro skills that are somewhat exclusive of each other. Like you've got to learn end games and you've got to learn the psychology of being a competitor and you've got to learn, you know, memorization of openings and you've got to learn various tactical tricks. And there's like, there's like 30 different micro skills that you have to get good at to get good at chess. The same thing's true with stand up comedy. And so I've been, I've been fascinated with the process, the meta language of learning mm-hmm. and but anyway, I, I then I had this experience last night where I, where before I was doing stand up, I was on this live podcast on the stage also, and it was about relationships. So it was just meant to be funny. And in the middle of it, I proposed to the girl sitting next to me. I didn't even know her. And <laughs> she posted it on her Facebook wall, and now I'm getting nonstop messages <laughs> it was serious and i'm getting ex-girlfriends like oh that was really insensitive of you like i didn't and i'm trying to explain it was look at the background it says stand up new york it's a comedy <laughs> club like take it in context of course i'm not gonna propose to someone i don't know in a comedy club well, well congratulations <laughs> on the engagement 
<laughs> anyway, I bought, even this girl, she's getting phone calls for to, to, to be interviewed about it, and 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 she has a boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> totally not serious. But anyway, I, I'm getting all these people like either happy for me or really angry at me. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Nobody actually understands that it's just a joke. But I feel like that's not that unusual for you to have people either really happy with you or angry with you. No, that's really true. And I don't know why that always is. I just kind of do my thing and I do whatever seems kind of most interesting at the moment. But I don't intend to – it's not like I'm intending to hurt anybody. It's just um, – at that moment, it was very funny. It was in front of an audience, and I wanted to make them laugh. Yeah, so and- how's, how's the comedy going, James? I've learned from you. I'm trying to interrupt people more, by the way, because I'm such a fan of your podcast, and I, it it adds to your podcast for sure, so I feel compelled yeah, to interrupt no, you. I, I appreciate that. Like People should interrupt. Um, it's going great. I really love it, and I could tell, just like with chess, you could kind of tell each time, you know, you hit a new level. Like I think, I think one thing about learning and and learning to learn again, it's like the meta language of learning is that you learn something, and then at first, as you absorb that new knowledge, you get worse, right? So let's say you're playing chess and you learn. You always used to open with the, you know, you love queen pawn openings, but you you decide to switch to king pawn openings. Okay, your your knowledge of chess is actually increasing, but at least initially. You'll 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 feel like you're playing worse because it's it takes you know a, a little while to absorb the new knowledge and then suddenly you hit a new level right, of, right. You, and so the same thing that that's kind of a a, a common concept in any learning any yeah, difficult yeah. thing and and the same thing happens with comedy and uh, I I feel very good when I recognize it happening like even on the downside and the upside but I feel like I'm, I keep hitting new levels, which I'm happy about. Yeah, I think I've heard you mention that book, uh, Moonwalking with Einstein, about uh, memory palaces. And yeah, he calls it the the OK Plateau. Yeah, so yeah, by Josh Foer. And he also um, studied with um, Anders Ericsson, the the 10,000-hour rule guy, as he was, um, you know, uh, studying the concept of memory palaces and a few other things. Because Anders Ericsson initially started doing his experiments uh, with people on memory, but then also switched to chess. Andrew studied chess quite a bit, as well as violin players. Yeah. Yeah. So you feel like you're at an okay plateau, but maybe starting to punch through the ceiling a little bit in comedy? I think, I think, I mean, I've been, I've been kind of really hacking it very quickly. Not, um, not meaning that I'm, um, I'm not patting myself on the back. I mean, I've been like obsessing on it. So it's been overly, I've been, I've been like spending perhaps too much time on it. But um, I, I think like every month or two, I hit I hit a downswing and then an upswing. So right now I'm on like an upswing, so I feel really good about it. Nice. And nice. Uh, and like uh, how many like, good minutes would you say you have now in in your act? Uh, I did. I did. Um, like in the past week, I've done. I've gone up on stage six times, seven times, and uh, uh, I, there was one time last week I did uh, twenty minutes, and I feel I I did well with twenty minutes. So because I combined a little bit of uh, not only my material, but what's called crowd work, which is a different skill in, right. in comedy. But like where you talk to the crowd and 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 and, and you, you know, you, you kind of they give you the material that, that 
you kind of build on. So combining with crowd work, I, I did a good 20 minutes. I think with my own material, about 15 minutes. Nice. So do you have an explicit goal for uh, the comedy um, dalliances? It, it's really funny. A lot of people ask me that because I think I think stand-up comedians often have goals like, oh, I want to be in a sitcom or I want to you know, uh, do a show on Netflix or I want to do this or I want to do that. I really have no goal other than to simply learn this incredible, incredibly challenging skill. Yeah, it seems like maybe the hardest job in the world. Yeah, I would never... I mean, look, also, I'm older than a lot of people who start doing things. So if you're 20 and starting comedy, just like if you're 10 and starting chess, it's more realistic to have goals on something that's so difficult where, and also that, that that's so competitive. But for me now, I don't have any goals with, with comedy other than simply the pleasure of, of learning a new skill, just like, just like the pleasure of learning chess or the pleasure of learning poker or the pleasure of learning ping pong. There's, there's, there's a certain process is art as well. And I, I love the process of learning something, um, as opposed to the final outcome. I don't really, I don't really care about, like, think about it. What, what was both of our goals with chess? It wasn't really to hit 2200. Like we just wanted to get as good as we could get. And obviously, like you, like you point out, it's obvious we weren't going to be world champions. And the only way to really make money with chess is to be in the top 10 in the world or the top 20 in the world. So chess is like a goalless thing to get good at other than there's this metric and you say, oh, I want to be 2200 and that feels good. Yeah, you just kind of invent signposts along the way, but they don't, they don't really mean that much to you. Right. That's why after I hit 2200, I was very careful to stop. Because I didn't want to go below twenty two hundred, which I knew I would eventually. Well, if you're, I simply you're hitting a you're hitting a sore subject for me, James. James. <laughs> I let the well, game thirties in New York destroy my rating, and now I'm finally playing again. But got, it's an uphill climb to get back to twenty two hundred with all these young whippersnappers doing their tactics. Yeah, twenty two hundred in tournament play is is difficult um, because you have to you have to study no matter what. I think you have to study. Um, and, and play with, with peers who are, who are at 2200 and, and, st- and take lessons from like a 24 or 2500. Like uh, uh, it, it requires work. Uh, but that's why I, after I hit 2200 and then I had that game, I, I had two games, the game with Asuka or however you say his name. I where, think it's Asuka. Asuka, where, where Hikaru was like, the, the six-year-old Hikaru was like breaking down the game. And then I had a game with the, very talented and young 13-year-old Irina Crush. And I lost the game. And on the ninth, and she afterwards, she said, you know, I think on the ninth move, you probably made a subtle error that caused the loss. <laughs> and I'm like, and that actually was, to be honest, that actually was the last tournament game I played. <laughs> That's very funny. Well, at least you lost to people who became like, you know, uh, you know, top of their field chess players. There's no shame in losing a Hikaru and Irina. No, and that's and that's um, and that's the thing about life experience is that you want you want each thing you do to be not only pleasurable but interesting. Yeah, and so 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 chess for me was a great experience, and 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 to learn it is such a fascinating skill. And of course, I had to close out with uh, literally a bang. Nice. Well, do you think you're done for sure? Well, I play. I play often, but I'm I'm definitely done with tournament chess. Wow, that's a bold statement for the author of Reinvent Yourself. 
Well, I, I, you know, I've reinvented into other things. Yeah, um, but you know, once you once you climb the comedy mountaintop, you don't think you'll decide you want to become an IM? Like maybe when you're like sixty or something? No, because I like other games also. Like I like Go, so I've, I'm like a, uh, I, I've worked really hard to be. You know, at my peak, I was probably a one don Go player. Um, I like poker, of course. I like backgammon. Um, I like uh, other kind of quasi games slash sports like ping pong. So I don't know if I mean chess. I love and I I I'd play chess every day, no problem. Uh, and I love it. It's it's still my favorite game. But tournament chess is is stressful. I don't know if I want that that particular stress again. Even if I um, even if I want to keep learning, like I've I've taken lessons. Uh, in the past years and but haven't felt the need to play tournament chess again yeah it's brutal like i i don't like i said i only play when i can but i happen to play this weekend and i lost to two two talented young kids just one i misplayed a a winning position and the other i just got outplayed and that crushing feeling from being a kid comes back where like it just feels like the world's like collapsing in on you when you lose but meanwhile like i'm 40 years old now like you know i work i have kids like you know, there's no, uh, the, I always think of this Eckhart Tolle quote where he says, nothing real is threatened. You know, like when you perceive stress, when it doesn't affect your life at all, I just tell myself nothing real is threatened. But it's funny how you have this sort of animal reaction when you lose a tournament chess game. Yeah, yeah, it, uh, it, it feels awful. Yeah, yeah. Like, that, I don't like that, that feeling. Like, and, I, and right now I feel it a little bit, uh, you know, uh, comedy, you feel it a little bit when, um, how should I say, when, when you bomb, right? Like when you, when, you, when you go up there and you tell jokes that you feel should work, but there's, there's one person in the audience who dislikes you for whatever reason, and he tends to control the, uh, because he might be the loudest, he tends to control the crowd, and, and that often happens, and that doesn't feel good either and it's a similar it's a similar kind of feeling because what it is it's all related to this primate so every primate uh, since since primates began rank themselves from alpha to omega in a tribe and humans have this extra ability where we could kind of choose our tribe so but if you choose okay chess is the thing i'm i'm obsessed with like some people could lose at chess and it's no big deal to them because that's not what it's not. That's not their tribe, right? They play in a tournament. It's fun. They lose. They don't really know what their rating is and they don't care and whatever. But people like you and me, when we were moving up the ranks, we would care. And that was how we would associate our self-worth with is what's our rating. And if I lost rating points, it's like I'm moving down in the tribe and you feel this, this spike in cortisol, uh, this, this, you know, this neurochemical because you think, oh, I'm moving down in the tribe. The tribe is going to push me to the edges of the tribe. You know, the, the alpha male will push me to the edges of the tribe. So I'm more likely to be eaten by wolves. And that's what it physically feels like. If, you, if, if you're in the chess tribe and you lose a game or if you're in the stand-up comedy tribe and, and you get and you bomb or you're in the poker tribe and you lose money, you know, whatever. And we all go with metrics. If you're if you make a Facebook post and you don't and you and you are obsessed with your likes and engagement and you don't get as much, 
you feel, oh no, you feel it viscerally. The tribe is pushing me to the side. We, we can't get rid of this feeling. That's like the best ep- best explanation of losing in chess I've ever heard, I think. Uh, yeah, it really well, resonates. I, I, I think about this a lot because, A, I'm probably like you, like uh, obsessive to some extent on whatever it is I'm, I'm pursuing. And, and B, uh, uh, you know, I really study kind of this, this meta skill of how do you learn to learn and, uh, and that, and, and kind of the evolutionary roots of how we, how we feel about ourselves and how it relates to, to learning and, and being passionate about something they're, they're all connected. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so a couple more things on chess, James. So one thing I want to do while you're here is pick your brain a little bit. So you're, you know, you're famous for, uh, you always talk about uh, you need to be an idea machine, like uh, brain, like you know, build the muscle of generating ideas. So on this podcast, I have a new feature of a couple weeks old where people who have donated to the podcast can send in questions for guests. So I need a name for it first of all. Um. Name for for the feature, you know, like you know, this is a low tech podcast. We don't have a lot, a lot of uh, drops or music, but I feel like this, you know, the like the call a friend on whatever that show was. Who wants to be a millionaire? Like, I feel like it needs a name for that feature. And I thought you might have like twelve good names off the top of your head. Oh, oh I, I don't understand what feature I'm naming that. What, oh, what okay, sorry. So, uh, so uh, a listener sends in a question for the guest. Yes. Um, that's it. That's the. <laughs> okay. The. Uh, oh, the. Uh, I don't know, like a call to action or a call to question. Yeah, I mean, or if there's there's so many bad chess puns, but it's hard to resist the urge to try to come up with one more. Um, uh, okay. An on passant. Right. Podcast passant. Yeah, or something involving kibitzing or something, but I feel like they're all overdone generally. So. Uh, uh, I, uh, 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 podcast Zug. <laughs> <laughs> That's not bad. Zug, yeah. All right. So anyway, let that percolate. But I'm going to ask a question from a listener, Brian Karen, who's another chess player and a fan of yours. And he yeah. said... Oh, yeah. I, I'm in his uh, Facebook book. Uh, he has a Facebook group uh, about chess books. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Well, he said that he once asked you on... Tw- he had another question, but this one was better, so I had to run with it. Um, he said he once asked you on Twitter... Uh, if you thought that chess should be taught in school and you said you thought that chess is the only thing that should be taught in school. Yeah. And I agree with that because, I mean, I agree with myself (laughs) because, because think about it. What do you, what do you actually remember from, from school? Like, let me ask you a question. This, and, and by the way, I've asked this question to a million people. So you might even, you might have even heard me or, or read me asking this question before, but I will guarantee you've learned this fact every single year of high school. And I will also guarantee you won't know the answer. Okay. So okay. Well, well, when was the Emperor Charlemagne, the, arguably the most important figure in 2000 years of European history, when was Charlemagne born? Give, I'm giving you five seconds. Five. I have four, no I, idea. I can't even I just, pretend. Throw out a number. Uh, 1300. 754. Okay. So you got so you're within 550 years, and that's and by the way, that's the average response. The huh. average answer is within 500 years, and and wouldn't you agree with me? You learned that every single year, or at least three of the four years of high school. I, I must have been thinking about chess or something in the back because I don't remember this at all. But, but, but that's an important point. You were thinking about chess. You were thinking about something you loved, and that actually 
was improving your life. Because when you learn something that about when you learn to be skillful at something you love, then you actually do build neural pathways in your brain. Your brain, you have more brain cells that are active. You're, 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 you, you learn about the art of learning. So when you had to learn other skills, like whether it was poker or computer programming or sales or whatever, it's, it's, it's because you learned something so difficult as chess, you're able to learn these other things much more quickly. And that's, that's really what school should teach is how to learn as opposed, oh, memorize these facts and pass a test. Because what, what, what are you ever going to do with those facts again in your life? Like, Nothing. You can't even get within 550 years the birthday of the most important figure in European history, and 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 you could say you could you could feel bad about that, but nobody gets the answer. Not a single person ever gets the answer. I, right. I've, I've done this. I've done this in audiences. I've done this with people who majored in European history, so they studied it in high school and then college, and they still get it within 500 years wrong. Yeah, maybe only a Jeopardy champion if you, yeah, were, if you ever, ever get Ken Jennings on or something. I think uh, he might be the only one that can get that. Yeah, right. Ken Jennings would get it. But he, he gets it not because he memorized. I mean, he does do memorization, but he had to learn the skill. He had to learn to learn how to be good at Jeopardy. So for him, his passion was very strict. Jeopardy is a very strategic game also. So he had to learn what he needed, what were the things that were most important to learn. And he had to study the art of memorization, just like Josh Forward did in, in Moonwalking with Einstein. And so the only reason he would get it is because either he was learning to play Jeopardy or he was obsessed with European history. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he didn't learn. He didn't remember it from school, most likely, although I'm sure he has an amazing memory. He learned it because, as you say, he made a study of Jeopardy. Um, right. So if all we learned was basically how to learn and we spent – a good 12 years about at that, I would guarantee you all of society would be much more innovative, entrepreneurial, successful, and, and so on. Yeah. So how would you like structure it? I mean, <laughs> I feel like this sort of goes, you're kind of anti-structure in your presentation. So I get that. But like, so basically everyone would just have like choice time basically of like maybe music, chess, languages, stuff like that, and they can immerse themselves or like... Well, that's a good question because they, then it boils down to, is there something that... Is there one thing that every one person loves? So, or, or not well, just one thing. Obviously, like I can think of one thing, but it's not not really for kids, right? <laughs> right. So, but like, well, okay, but everybody has like a range of things. Like, you know, you like chess, you like poker, you like other things. Um, I wonder if it, if there needs to be a way to kind of suss out what a child, you know, is passionate about. And usually, you know, like usually you get an idea between the ages of six and 14 say, Oh, this young person loves to read science fiction or this one young, young person loves chess or loves tennis or, you know, loves to draw or loves playing the piano. And that might not be the only thing, but it might be one of maybe a dozen things and you've identified one thing. And it's, I always tell people even write down a list. What are the things that you love from the ages of six to 14 and, and see how they how how they've grown uh, with you in, in age and um, but 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 let's just stick with the six to fourteen year olds for a second. Okay, now put together a program for them to really oh they 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 have an interest in the piano. Okay, so so let's really focus on the piano for them and and teach them not just the piano but the art of learning something because there's a psychology to piano. There's a psychology to 
uh, or there's different uh, micro skills like learning to read music, learning to improvise, learning to, um, you know, be coordinated with the fingers. Uh, there's all these micro skills that are exclusive to each other in piano and, and Okay, and then if they switch to chess from there, now they got a head start because they've learned how to learn a little bit, and they, and they, they can switch. Nice. It's, like, a, it's a good idea. So I know that you have kids. Did you – I mean, obviously, they, they probably went to school. So were you able to, like, sort of uh, imbue any of these ideas from the outside uh, with your own kids? You know, I, I didn't because, A, uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm – you know, divorce. So my kids sort of only half grew up with me, but, um, uh, but I would just show them by example, how I would learn something. Cause you can't tell somebody unless, unless the system is set up, like they, they, they needed to go to school. Like they felt that they needed to go to school and school is all day for them. So they just, and they would put themselves in that tribe, like A, B, C, D, F. So that was their tribe. And it's hard to really get people out of their tribe. Uh, but um, they would learn by example and, and they pursue things that they're interested in. I, I always hope they, they know and remember how I did things and, you know, keep that in mind. But I also saw how when they started going to school and, and particularly after the, they would like draw all summer and then they would start school again and they would stop drawing. So school would basically squash whatever it is they were actually getting good at and, and falling in love with. So I definitely saw the differences between when they had free time to pursue what they loved and school where they were forced to do things they didn't love. Yeah. Yeah. And now they don't remember any of those things. Like it was useless to them. Right. By the way, I've been enjoying the, the theme in your like writing a podcast lately about try, trying to stop your daughter from going to college. Oh yeah. And you know, it didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you know, at the same time, like I could have forced her not to go to college, but I don't think that would have worked either in terms of, my job as a parent um, having a long-term effect you know, on, on her being a good person into her 30s and 40s and, and whatever. So I, I honestly didn't really know what to do, but I kind of took the path of least resistance. Yeah, it seems yeah, like you, you made a good effort. I made a good effort, yeah. Okay, so James, okay. I, I do want to talk about poker a little bit. So you're, you're even pre-rounders generation, right? No, I'm, uh, I think you're. I think you're. I would say I'm rounders generation, and you're post rounders. <laughs> okay, I mean I'm rounders change my life generation, which is a, a big generation in the. Po- I mean I'm not really in the poker world anymore, but I was for a long time. It's so funny because I mean I talked to Brian and, and David, who are the co writers on that show, quite a bit. Uh, they would be happy to hear you say that. I'm sure. Yeah, well, I'm not the first. That's that's for sure. Um, so how did you, what sparked I, your I just, initial interest? I'm supposed, play, I'm supposed to play poker with them tonight, actually. Oh, nice. Well, you tell them they can put another one on the chalkboard. <laughs> I, 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 I might not go though, because I feel like I, I, this is a side thing. I, I signed up for this, to play in this charity poker event, but now I'm feeling like I have a cold and I'm feeling, I don't want to play. Yeah. You have to be in the mood. I was going to ask what stakes you play, but I guess if it's a charity thing, it's not like, do you play home games with those guys? No, I mean, I probably could if I want, but I, I, I don't really, I don't like to, and maybe you're the same way. I don't like to play something if I'm not going to be at my best. And, and that's not necessarily having a cold. It's, um, if I haven't studied something for the prior six months, I probably am not at my best. And, and then I don't really feel like playing. Gotcha. 
So when you did, when you were really into poker, I know you've written that like you ended up playing, you played like nonstop for a year and played the night your daughter was born. Just like, uh, just as you've said, you know, when you get into something, you're obsessed. So what, what sparked your obsession in poker? Um, I had just sold a company and, and I think I was again, really unhappy with my life (laughs) in various ways. And I wasn't really sure if I wanted to have kids, which I'm just being honest about. Like, I love my kids more than anything, but it's a scary thing to have kids. And I, I wasn't sure how my life would change. And it was really scary to me. And I would I would I lose my own youth by having a kid? And I've always loved games. As you know, I've, I've play, played every game. And, and also, because I work so hard on building a company, I didn't really have any friends. I just had, I had, I had kind of hired all my friends. <laughs> and uh, so suddenly you, you, I was able to every night play a game, which was challenging enough to be similar to chess. You know, it's arguable whether poker is more or less complicated than chess. Everybody has a different opinion, but it's, but it's at least that argument exists. So, so it was a challenging game. And I made friends like I'm everybody's social around the table and it's funny. And I like, I like humor. Everyone makes jokes around the table. So it kind of combined all my interests. It was strategic. It was psychological. It was a game. I was making friends. Uh, so it kind of, it, it sort of filled all these holes in my life, uh, very easily. And so of course I became obsessed with it. And this was before there was YouTube videos and all these books, about poker. This was before the TV generation and the internet generation of poker. So I was obsessively trying to find every book I could find on poker. I was talking to everybody I could. I was sending away for VHS tapes. Poker Mike Caro. <laughs> yeah, and I would know, and I would watch like, just like they did in, in the scene in Rounders where he's watching like the World Series of Poker and thinking about every hand. And this was before the, the cameras under the table. Uh, I was just everywhere I could. I would uh, kind of either talk to people about poker or think about it or, or try to learn from people. I'd go to Atlantic City a lot because there was, you know, or, or I'd go to Las Vegas a lot because there was really good players in Las Vegas. Like, you know, Dan Negreno, who was just starting out then, he was, he, if you want to talk about talent, he was like incredibly talented uh, even as a little kid or, you know, a, a teenager, I guess, in, in poker. And you would learn just watching these people play. And so I wanted to learn as, as much as I could, as quickly as I could. You must, and you mentioned the Taj Mahal. Did you ever see Ivy, a.k.a. Jerome, there when you were uh, a regular? I don't remember that. I mean, I would play pretty high stakes at, at the Taj. Okay. So okay. I don't know what stakes he played. I mean, he, he's similar to Negriano. He just, like, rose up, like, shot up through the ranks. And, you know, there's a famous story of him. He went by Jerome because he wasn't even 21, and he had a fake idea that his, ID that his name was Jerome. So when he turned 21, he just showed up the next day and said, oh, by the way, my name's Phil, and here's my real ID. Oh, uh, that's funny. Yeah, I, you know, maybe if it was around that time, like, uh, I think I saw you and Gregor the summer of 1999. I got a house. Here's how obsessed I was. I, I got a house in Brigantine, and... Fridays at like five o'clock, I would leave from work, uh, go to, I guess it was 33rd street. I would take a helicopter to Atlantic city. I would play, I would play, I would drop off my stuff at my house in Brigantine. I would play for 48 hours straight and then take a helicopter back. That's hilarious. So that shows like if you're taking a helicopter there, I guess it wasn't so much about the money for you, right? 
No, no, but the price of the helicopter, okay, I could win or lose that in one hand. In you the were very playing first hand, Wow. Yeah. How much was a helicopter at AC? Do you remember? Yeah, $1,800. Wow. So you were playing pretty big because, I mean, obviously that's, that's big even now. But like back then, it was kind of hard to find a game where pots were $1,800. Yeah, because there was no, no limit then. It was only um, high stakes limit. And um, the average game was about 100, 200, and but we would play up to 300, 600. Okay. And were you a winning or losing player, you think, overall? Um, overall winning, but I would say the first six months while I was trying to, quote-unquote, hack the skill, I was losing, but I wasn't playing at those stakes. And then in, when I, in the big, very beginning of that summer, I was losing, but then very quickly I was winning. I was winning in Atlantic City. I wasn't winning in Las Vegas. Las Vegas was extremely difficult. But Atlantic City, I started winning. Okay. And when did you lose interest? I'll, I'll tell you a story. So that okay, was cool. Okay, cool. Uh, that was 1999, right? And then I would always put um, my wins or losses, just to keep track, I would put my wins or losses in my box at the Tosh. And, and then I just, at one point, I, I realized, oh, I don't have the house anymore in Brigantine. It was just like a summer lease. So I stopped going down to Brigantine and then I, I lost interest in poker. I started another company and blah, blah, blah. And so that was 1999. Um, in 2008, I went, drove down to Atlantic city just to see what was in my box. And, and, and they, you know, they have all the records that when was the last time I checked the box and everything, they're like, what the heck? You haven't been here in nine years. <laughs> and, there, and there was something like $34,000 cash in the box. So that was my net winnings for that summer. That must, must be nice, James. <laughs> that, well, it was like, I didn't even know what I had there. I, I thought maybe it was like five, $6,000 or something. And, and I said, okay, can I have it all in cash? And so they just give me this, this wad of cash. Okay. So it wasn't like a safety deposit box it was uh like because for listeners they they can do it differently they can have an actual physical box where they give you the key and they don't ever touch it or they can basically just like keep an account for you so yeah yeah they i, I certainly didn't have a key so they just okay. kept an account. Okay. i'm lucky they don't just like automatically i don't know turn it over to somebody after a year of right. not being right. used so yeah. i'm just yeah. I, I had no idea going down there i mean i should have called in advance probably uh, but I had no idea going down there that they, whether or not they would each even have my memory of me. Um, um, okay, so with poker, I, I think you do. You have any interest at this point? I mean, I read. I you know, I've I get the impression at this point you hold chess in higher regard than poker, as most no, of our no, listeners. No, not not at all. I think poker and, and chess are both fascinating games. I, I just I just ran into uh, on the street uh, yesterday, Eric Seidel. Oh wow. Uh, and we, we spoke for a while. He's going to, or, you know, he's going to come on my podcast. And oh, that's I, and awesome. I, yeah. And I, I, I play, I, I, um, I play poker occasionally, like heads up with a friend of mine who's, uh, hardcore taking lessons and, and, and learning. And so, uh, I, pl- I play every, every once in a while, but no, I don't play like a big home game at, at all though. Okay. All right. So another topic for you, James podcasts, um, so you've said you think podcasts are in the first inning of uh, their their development. Yeah, maybe inning two now, like our inning ones are. Yeah, inning two maybe, like in the sense that I think people know what the word podcast means now, and 
and I, but I don't think most people listen to podcasts yet. And I think most people still listen to the radio. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm I'm sorry. I, just, I I see this flood of phone calls <laughs> on my phone. I'm of course I'm not picking up. I should turn, I'll turn the phone over. But like this thing I did yesterday, <laughs> it's very like, funny. Like, like the entire universe is like like my mother is calling me to find out if I'm engaged. But uh, a- anyway, um, uh, I'm sorry about Podcasts, that. Podcast like, second inning. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I see my audience moving up every single month, uh, uh, and I think it's in part. I think it's a factor of me trying to improve at podcasting, but also I think the general podcast audience is growing. So I, I as, and and I see exponential growth. So as long as the exponential growth is happening, you know you're in early innings because most of exponential growth of anything happens in let's call it innings one through four. Right. So right. do you see this against along the podcast? like uh landscape generally or specifically with yours i see it i see it with everybody okay and i I had a question for you i'm trying to like i'm a big fan of your podcast um and i don't know your publishing schedule and i feel like they're just coming faster and faster is is that accurate yes because (laughs) um because i see what's happening and and i've also you know tried to analyze what happens again it's it's a skill like any other. So you, and there's all these micro skills to podcasting as well. So, so I, analyze. Right, you, have to, you have to give me some of the micro skills. Okay. Well, one thing is for instance, and this is a little, you're where you're in Philadelphia right now, right? No, I live in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. I'm from Philly. Oh, okay. So, so this is a little bit more difficult for you, but, uh, you know, doing podcasts in person is, is a three to four X effect over doing it on Skype. And, uh, and, and doing it in a studio is a three to four X over just doing it in person. And then if you furthermore, if you add to the production quality, that's another, let's say two to five X. And by that, I mean, um, if you were going to add production quality to this, which, which I don't do, but a lot of people do, or not a lot, but some, um, you would, you would maybe interview, like, I don't know, somebody I played poker with 20 years ago, or you would interview an ex-wife of mine, or, <laughs> you know, uh, you would bring in more voices to, to kind of make make the arc of a story. And so that adds to the production quality. And I don't do that. Most most podcasts are not in that format, but those are often are the most successful podcasts. Like, you look at things like Startup or Serial or whatever, um, uh, or, or the Richard Sim- Missing Richard Simmons, like all these kind of podcasts that like shoot out of the gate really popular they have high production quality um you and i are moving up through uh better and better you know we have to improve also our skills as it's cute that that you put you include me in that sentence thank you (laughs) no but everybody like i am always trying to to improve by interview skills conversation skills uh the kind of preparation so there's all those kind of basic skills and then there's the kind of um uh, production skills on sort of audio and and production quality, and then and then there's the team you have around you. So who's the audio engineer? Who's your producer? Who's um, you know who are your who's setting up your ads if you have? Uh, so so uh, you know and then and then uh, you know often I'll write sh- uh, uh, an article about the podcast, so that kind of adds 
you know, so people who might not listen to my podcast will still be aware of it because they'll read the article about it. Uh, and so that may or may not add to kind of the general buzz of the podcast. So right, there's all right. sorts of, of factors like that. But uh, uh, one of the factors is the more podcasts you do, the big, the larger your audience becomes, which seems kind of – my first thought was that's counter to what I would believe because you, people only have so much time. But it turns out that that's true. Yeah, it seems like the people who are into them are really into them. So Yeah, and, and what happens is you increase the opportunities for the people who really like your podcast to share with people who don't know about your podcast. So 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 that's why the more you do, the more shares you get to, to people who don't necessarily know your podcast exists. Yeah. So yeah. so that's why it's a, it's a good thing. And by the way, I, when I, in the intro, when I said you were the inspiration, I really, I wasn't exaggerating. You once wrote a post that I have not been able to track down because you write, you know, 50 posts a day, but you wrote a post called something like why every introvert should start a podcast. And yeah. And, and, um, a friend of mine, Ryan Holiday wrote an article, a really good article about how, why you shouldn't do a podcast. And so I wrote the article, not quite tongue in cheek, but I just kind of addressed what he didn't address and he and he actually to his credit you know retweeted mine and i retweeted his and and we were, it was all in out of friendship and, and good fun but uh i wrote why everybody should do a podcast and um you know there, there's just as valid reasons to do one as as to not do one yeah it took yeah, me at least six months to actually do the podcast from reading that article but but i thought about it a lot although i can't find it <laughs> Well, why, why did you decide to do a chess-inspired one? Obviously, because you're a chess master, and this is a, a strong skill for you. Yeah, I mean, that was what, but it was like the one thing in the world that I saw that I couldn't believe didn't exist, basically. I mean, shout out to the Full English Breakfast. Those guys were awesome. But at the time that, uh, I mean, are awesome, excuse me, guys. Uh, but at the time, they were on hiatus, and there was just nothing. And I listen to podcasts all the time, so it, it just, I couldn't believe it. You know, in the... The interview, the long form interview of a subgenre is a tried and true format, as you know. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Um, you know, on the one hand, do you fear you, you limit your potential audience because you're so focused on chess? Like you could have focused it on um, peak performance within games, for instance. So you could have on poker, go, uh, backgammon, archery, you know, whatever. Yeah. yeah. I mean, stuff uh, like that is possible if and when I have a good enough audience. But like I didn't, you know, I had some high profile friends in the chess world. But other than that, you know, there no one knew who I was. So, no, and you know, and you're right, because, you know, also chess is a very loyal audience. So um, if you have like a, a number of good guests, then suddenly you're going to have regular, you know, har- hardcore loyal listeners. And your, your goal might not be to um, have, you know, a billion listeners, but your goal might be to really provide a great product for you know people who are obsessed with chess for instance yeah that's my that's goal it's going to limit your audience but but it'll create a more loyal following that won't that won't go away yeah that's a, that is exactly my goal so another podcast question because i do have a, a producer who helps me um shout out to matthew passy and he told me that it's a myth that podcast reviews matter on itunes and- um he, uh, you know, po- uh, he might be right, but from what I understand, uh, s- the speed of reviews and the speed of subscribers are what create rankings. So if you're, po- so like for instance, my volume goes up every month, 
but my rankings don't necessarily change because my that initial kind of um, curve of fast uh, sub- subscriptions and fast reviews happen in the beginning, which is why when a podcast launches, they tend to be ranked, you know, in the top ten really quickly, and then they kind of drift down from that, no matter no matter what's happening with the actual uh, number of downloads. Okay, so they do matter some. They matter. I think they matter some, but only in the very, only in the very beginning, and only kind of the first derivative of the number. Okay, because yeah, because I don't know Apple Podcasts. Like as I said, the reason I made a chess podcast is because there basically were none. There's a few. There's a handful of dormant ones, and I've gotten a pretty decent audience in the nine months I've been doing this. Um, and I, I can't pass the dormant ones. I have more reviews than them, more downloads than them, but I just, I'm still on the second page if you short, if you search chess podcast. I think after you launch, you kind of have your, that first week or so to kind of carve out where you're going to be. And then that's where you're going to be for, for a good long time. That's and brutal. I, I mean, it doesn't I, matter that much, but, but. No, I don't think it matters because, you know, ultimately it doesn't, it doesn't seem to, I mean, maybe it changed the number of downloads, um, but my number of downloads, like I said, keep going up without any change in my ranking. Sometimes okay. my ranking okay. goes down, but my number of downloads go up. <laughs> nice. Um, and how much time, I mean, you're so well prepared for your interviews, James. So like if you have, I've been enjoying the, I don't, I haven't been reading much in the past few years. My kids are, are young, but I really liked the two uh, thriller writers you've had on recently. Like I, I get the impression you're a fan of uh, that genre and fan of those authors to begin with, but are you like rereading their books when they come on and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or in Alex Behrens's case, I read, uh, his the entire primary series he's written to prepare for that podcast. That's amazing. So I read the first book in the series when I asked him to come on, and then I and then I read the rest. So it was a a, a, a bunch of things, uh, uh, you know, that I had to read and, and prepare. And you know, some people are harder than others to prepare. Like when I had Nassim Taleb on, I, I read his books, and it's not like he's a thriller writer. He, it's very dense, uh, and he does it on purpose. He wants his books hard to read, and you know it was hard to read those books. Yeah, yeah. that guy's a great writer, but he's so combative online. He is. He, I asked him about that on my podcast, actually, and uh, he says he just does that for sport. Huh? Because uh, uh, he, he's really such a pleasant guy in person, and I'm like, why? It seems so different how you are. Like you're always fighting the people on Twitter, and he's like, "Oh, it's just intellectual sport for him." Interesting. Uh, I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. So I have to ask, James. I mean, you're a super successful guy, or at least you know. I know you've been up and down in your life, but at this moment, I think you're doing pretty well. So how how big a I mean, how big a part of uh, the revenue pie is your podcast compared to uh, the other stuff you're doing? Let me see. Uh, I'll, I'll just go by last year. I'll go by. I'll go by what I think it's going to be this year. Uh, I mean, I, I, it's hard to say because what am I doing? I don't have one thing that I do. So I have investments. I have a business. I have a podcast. Uh, it's hard to say, but it's not. It's not a big. It's not a big part. Okay, that's surprising <laughs> considering how much time you put in. But I yeah, guess but. if it's early days, it makes sense. No, no. I mean. Um, it, it it makes a profit, and if I wanted to, I could just I could just do that, and it'd be fine. But uh, uh, it's just that other things are so much more profitable with much less work. And so then you could say, well, why don't you just focus on the profitable things that are less work? Well, I think there's other benefits to doing things you enjoy. Is that you you do them better, and 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 those are the things that where you could kind of put a stake in the ground and say, hey, this is 
this is what I'm good at, so so pay attention to it. And, and you know, and that helps your other the other things that might be more profitable. Yeah, and I do think you have a unique approach, even within the like interview podcast space. I mean, you're you're better prepared and you interrupt more. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's true. <laughs> the interruptions I kind of get uh, known for, and some people some people send me angry emails. Let your guests talk, and uh, you know when. Why? Like, when else am I ever going to have an hour with this person to ask this burning question that I have? So I have to interrupt sometimes, particularly if they're on, if they're staying on message. Okay, listen to any other interview that they do if you want to hear their message. But I just want to ask the questions I want to ask. I, I prepare, like you say, I prepare really hard. So I have questions that are maybe a little different than other people's. Right. right. Okay, James, one more topic. Actually, two more topics, if you don't mind. Sure. Okay. So... Uh, day trading. I'm. I. I don't know if I should be em- embarrassed to admit, but I spent years trying to day trade, and despite your writing about it, and I know you had some success, and I wasn't a total failure. I had the the chess players mentality, so I treated it like a business, and I managed to get to a above break even point, and then uh, I needed to feed my kids, so I had to quit. But but uh, is, that, is that funny though? You were day trading the financial markets. And it couldn't feed your kids. Yeah, it is funny. I mean, it's, I mean, yeah, the, it doesn't seem like, uh, the VIG is sneakier in day trading than it is in, uh, in, in other endeavors like poker. And, and by the way, I'm going to break apart one other thing you just said there is that you had a chess player's mentality. You didn't have an AP biology mentality, you had a chess player's mentality. So, so again, when it comes to the question of what should one study in, in the formative years, AP biology or, French history don't matter as much as as something as as incredibly hard and skillful as as the meta art of learning chess. Yeah, although I mean the chess player's mentality served me very well in poker, but in day trading, like I said, I fell short. I mean, I got I got to where you know ninety eight percent of the people don't get to where I got, and it wasn't good enough. Um, but I had a listener question related because you've got a big finance background as well. Uh, so Chris Wayne Scott asked, who's a bigger character? And this ties into chess as well. Emery Tate or Jim Cramer? Oh, my God. That's, that's such a funny question. Um, well, of course, your audience probably knows who both is, correct? Yeah, you should probably do. I mean, it's hard to do justice to Emery Tate. I'm going to have the author of his biography, uh, Daim Shabazz, on at some point. But Oh, you got to have, have Emery's son also on. Oh, really? Yeah, he's um he's like a champion um, mixed martial arts guy. Wow. And he, wow. and he really learned, again, the meta art of learning something. He really learned from his dad, like his dad's approach. Um, but okay, I'll describe Emery real quickly. He was, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a phrase that almost doesn't make sense. He was an incredibly violent chess player. Right. <laughs> and like I, the one tournament game I played with him, I think you were there. It was the Atlantic Open in 1997. Were you there? Yeah, we yeah. talked about this offline. I would have to look, but there's a good chance I was there. Yeah, Greg was – I played Greg in the first round and lost. Greg Shahade. It was a B uh, – with Greg, it was a B4, Kings Indian defense. I remember this is like 20 years later. Funny, and, funny. Um, I, I remember almost the whole game. And then, and then with Emery, he was around – also around 2,400, and I was moving up in the 2,200s. And he – I was – I was crushing him and then bam, he like was so, inc- he twisted that board like it was in, like he was insane or something and then it, it ended up being a draw but it was like an incredibly violent draw and I remember I was so 
like people were standing around and I was so like, what the, what the heck just happened? I said, that was, I said to him right after the game finished, I said, that was like the most, uh, incredible game that I'd ever played in. And I forgot that people were playing all around me still in the tournament. They were like, <laughs> shh. And, uh, but, but yeah, and he didn't even want to go over the game. He was so disgusted that he drawed with me. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, but, but he, he, but that was his thing was he was incredibly tactical in this very creative way and, um, incredibly talented. He had kind of have the, had the appearance of like not having to study the game much because he was so incredibly had such a unique style, but I don't, you know, Jim Cramer is also incredibly talented at financial markets. So it's kind of apples and oranges. They're both characters in their own right. Well, I know from experience that Emery Tate was manic off camera. Is uh, is Jim Cramer manic off camera? Oh yeah, definitely. Oh, interesting. So it's a. It's I mean, a- I mean, one time, one time. So I knew Jim pretty well. We did videos every day for 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 years. And uh, one time, Jim calls me into his office. Uh, this was before Fox Business launched, and he was like, "This is what Fox Business should do to set, distinguish themselves from CNBC." And so we call, so I go into his office and he just, the ticker, you know how CNBC has got the ticker running all the time and right. just all these stocks up, down, up, down. And he starts doing a lightning round on every single ticker and he knows everything about every single company. And so he, he says, I could do this for three hours straight on every ticker. And he says, that's what they should just do every morning. And, and it was, it was really fascinating to see in action. Like it's, the guy was prodigious in terms of his knowledge of, of the markets and people make fun of his personal style, but, but, you know, just like I'm sure people could of, of Emery, but again, and he was just this manic genius. Nice. Okay. And, and, uh, so last topic, James, um, we, uh, we always get chess book recommendations. I know what one of yours is going to be, but, uh, I will, uh, I will leave it to you. Um, we always have listeners who are trying to get better at chess and you, you improve quickly. So, um, Let's get some recommendations. Well, well, if you look at if you look at the people who move up the fastest in in the chess world, they always move up the fastest first because they they're tactically very strong. Um, so if you're only going to read one book, uh, chess by Laszlo Polgar, with I guess it's five thousand yeah problems. <laughs> that was the and, book that <laughs> that I knew you would recommend. But go on. Yeah, it's just problem after problem. Some are hard, some are easy. Some are intended to be solved very quickly. Some are intended to be solved more difficultly, but you don't have to spend the time. You can look, you can look at the answer. He even says, go look at the answer if you don't get it after a while. His, his, I, I, you know, and obviously he's very interesting because of the, everybody knows the history of how he taught his three da- daughters and they're all champions. So he must have used this technique with them as children and they were incredibly talented or skillful. We don't know right out the gate. He didn't believe in talent. He believed in skill. So taking him for his word, uh, they all were inter- uh, incredibly skilled straight away. And I think it was because he would just give them thousands of problems and, and force them to solve the problems very quickly. And so, again, taking him for, for his word, that's probably the, the best book to study for fast improvement. And then probably number two is – uh, getting a computer database and studying openings, and then number three is getting an instructor. Okay. Okay. So you're you're the of the school of thought that you need to invest if if you want to improve. You need you need to pay someone to help you. Always in in everything in everything you do, you need to you need to study from someone better than you. Are you getting? I mean, I know you're a huge student of comedy. Is anyone actually like? Are you paying anyone for lessons? I'm not. I'm not paying anybody, but. Uh, 
I do pay attention. Very, I have on my podcast, for instance, I'll get on uh, on my podcast really strong professional comedians, and I'll and that gives me an opportunity to just drill them on every single question I have. And those are questions usually based on experiences I've had just in the past, you know, couple of weeks that I've experienced on the stage. So it's a it's a good opportunity for me to to kind of. Uh, exchange promotion for their latest projects in exchange for me um, uh, asking them very serious questions, which of course is going to benefit anybody interested in peak performance also, because I'm trying to achieve peak performance as quickly as possible. Yeah. So I, I love hearing comedians discuss their craft. It's always interesting. Yeah, because it's not, it's people think, Oh, I have some jokes to tell you and they tell you the jokes and they, whether they're funny or not, if they're not stand up comedy jokes, stand up comedy is co- a completely different thing than comedy, which is a completely different thing than humor, which is a completely different thing than jokes. So all of those things are good depending on what you like, but stand up comedy is a particularly incredibly difficult skill. Yeah. And I mean, these people, they, they craft their acts like word by word. Um, yeah, and then but then also, what about the guys who do crowd work? Yeah, you know, or what? About, yeah, totally. You know, yeah, totally and, and then you know, it's very interesting to see, you know, um, not necessarily crowd work, but the ability to understand what you have to do to make different crowds laugh. Like you could almost make index cards like for different kinds of crowds, and you could probably fill up, like, you could put crowd and what you do with this type of crowd, and you could probably fill up two or 300 index cards like that. Like, there's that many distinct types of crowds. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, and that, and that itself is just one skill among, like, 50 that you have to learn. Man, well, I'll be interested to see how it turns out. I feel like if anyone can, like, you know, make it as a, I mean, I don't know if you're going to be, like, selling out Madison Square Garden, but I feel like if anyone can... uh <laughs> can achieve great heights like uh starting from scratch at whatever you know roughly 50 however old you are it's you yeah 49 49 don't age me don't get don't, <laughs> yeah that's a big one to give you don't put a five there too quickly <laughs> yeah exactly, but, um, exactly. Uh, and you know again I'm, I'm sort of goalless with it like i'm feeling i'm starting to feel pretty good with what i've learned but since i'm still obsessed with it i'm gonna continue to learn but i think when it when it starts to plateau I get. I tend to get a little tired, so we'll see. Okay. Well. Well. Awesome, James. James, thank you so much for coming on. I've been reading your stuff since like 2010, so this is a, a real thrill for me. And and Ben, thank you. Whether we know it or not, we, we were we were probably on the same train back right. when the Atlantic <laughs> opened in 1997 because I was sitting right next to. I was I was sitting across the aisle from Greg. Greg remembers everything. He remembers every little detail about like every little trip he used to remember my games better than i did when we were kids speaking about chess talent so um that's uh that's something we'll have to get to the bottom of with him he'll remember so, so greg will know i'll tell you something greg told me though a few years ago because i went down to philadelphia and we played a little bit and he and i guess because i hadn't really studied in like many years at that point um he said it's as if you somehow got to this weird level without ever reading a book of chess because <laughs> my <laughs> My style at that point was so messed up. I'm just playing like on the phone on ICC or whatever. And it was just like I had a, I only played like one minute chess at that time for, for maybe a decade. And so it was just a, a weird, a weird way of playing. Um, so, but that, that was, so Greg slammed me. 
That's funny. <laughs> yeah, he's he's not fun to play against for for mortal, mortals like us. Well, but, he, but he's fun, way, but you don't. I love watching his YouTube channel. He plays. He's really great. He has a really great YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah, I enjoy it too. Um, okay, James. Well, I'll put your Twitter handle up anywhere. Anywhere else, people can uh, harass you. I know you're yeah. a busy guy. Yeah, if they just at at Jay Altucher or uh, I don't know. You can find if you if you Google "I want to die." That's usually the fastest way. <laughs> nice. I'm, I'm the number two or number three result on uh, depending on what your cookies tell you. Okay. Excellent. Well, thanks a lot, James. This was a lot of fun. Okay. Thanks, Ben. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Perpetual Chess. Special thanks go out to our Patreon Perpetual partners. They are Chris Wainscott, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Chris Flanagan, Gary Andrews, Jennifer Valence, Krishna Galapakrishnan, Matthew Tedesco, Ricky Grahalvo, Rob Lazorchek, and Tim Seymour. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'll catch you guys next week. Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.